right here and let's fold our hands and bow our heads and let's pray, okay? Dear Jesus, thank you that we can be here today. Thank you that we can be with our friends, that we can learn more about you, that we can learn how to worship you. We pray that you would help us do that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Come on, this way. Well, while you turn in your Bibles to Exodus 13, our text for today, I'm going to do a whole chapter. This was originally uh, two sermons, supposed to be two sermons, but when we lost the uh, snow day, the Sunday, we um, combined it. So, and as I sort of uh, prepared it, everybody I looked at said, no, you really should do three sermons. So you're going to get it all today. Um, before we do that, we need to uh, be in prayer. As many of you know, Mark Chris's mom uh, passed away yesterday, and they're in North Carolina. And we've had a number of deaths in our congregation of extended uh, family members. I know Ivan Palkovic's uh, grandmother died last month. Uh, Dick Darden's father uh, died. Andy Warren, who's one of our missionaries to Ethiopia, his uh, mom uh, passed away. So we've been hit by a number of things, which, if nothing else, should lead us to be praying for all those families. Uh, there are a number of the rest of us who have aging parents. Um, and so uh, we would all appreciate that we regularly pray for families to uh, be able to handle all the change, all the loss that comes into our life. So greatly appreciate that. If you turn with me to Exodus 13, it's a long 22 uh, verses. They're a longer uh, passage. There's a lot uh, going on here. Uh, once again, we are getting ready uh, to leave Egypt as we go through the book of Exodus. So let's open with a word of prayer, and then we'll get right into it. Heavenly Father, this is your word, and as always, we uh, desperately need it. We need to be reminded of what makes God God, what makes God great, what makes God good. We need to be reminded that Exodus isn't just a history story, but that it's a redemption story. And we need a redemption story. Thank you that Exodus points us to our Redeemer. Uh, we need the redemption he offers. So we pray uh, by the power of the, your Holy Spirit this morning, help us see Jesus. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Amen. Well, unless you live in Antarctica, uh, you have a new concern to live with. And that's falling satellites. I know you've been up all night long worrying about this. Um, actually, NASA estimates that an average of 
One object a day has been dropping out of the sky every day for the last 50 years. More than 500,000 pieces of debris or space junk are tracked as they orbit the Earth. And there's another half a million pieces up there that are too small to track. And they all travel at speeds over 17,000 miles per hour, which is fast enough for a relatively small piece of orbital debris um, to come through and pretty much damage or destroy anything in its path. Um, Back of the envelope calculation back in the uh, Apollo days was that a chip of paint moving at orbital speed packs as much of a wallop as a bowling ball moving at 60 miles an hour. So that gives you something to imagine. There's that. The last major satellite to fall to the Earth was the seven-ton Russian Progress 59 in May of 2015. Uh, Before that, we had the one-ton European Space Agency craft in November of 2013. And in 2011, we'd had, had NASA's six-ton upper atmosphere research satellite. Now, they tell us the pieces could land pretty much anywhere except Antarctica. So that's like the only safe place. It's a tad cold, but other than that, no satellites, you're good. And even though they start out at six or seven tons, They said only about 1,200 pounds are expected to survive re-entry, and they usually land in about 100 pieces. And the biggest come in at about 300 pounds. So essentially, it hits the atmosphere like a school bus and hits the ground like a piano. So what's it like to get hit by space junk? Well, we have to ask Lottie Williams. She's the only person in history that's known, that's been verified to have had this experience. In January of 1997, she and two friends were walking through a park in Tulsa, Oklahoma at 3.30 a.m. They saw a huge fireball streaking from the skies. It turned out to be an Air Force Delta II rocket re-entering the atmosphere. And it broke up over Oklahoma And all these pieces came down, and a piece the size of a soda can hit her on the shoulder. Now, luckily for her, it was windy. And because of the wind resistance, it was fluttering to the ground so slowly that it didn't really hurt her, just left a small bruise. But she wrote a whole article on how unnerving it was to realize that a piece of a spacecraft came down and smacked her in the park in the middle of the night. So what are the odds that you're going to get hit? Well, NASA estimates there's a 1 in 3,200 chance that someone is going to be struck by a piece of a falling satellite. The odds that that someone is you is 1 in several trillion. And I just couldn't do that many zeros. So you're probably not worried about space junk, and you probably didn't stay up last night worrying about falling satellites. But you may have stayed up worrying about something else. You may have stayed up and uh, not been able to sleep because there's something in your future that has your attention.
Maybe there's a decision that has to be made, and you don't know what decision to make. Maybe there's a problem that has to be addressed, and you don't know how to address it. Maybe there's a fear that you have to face, and you don't know how to face it. And so while it's probably not falling satellites, the likelihood is there's something that keeps you up at night. This week, I think you can find great help in this obscure passage, Exodus 13, a text that you've probably never turned to before to get help. Because here in Exodus 13, after Pharaoh lets the Hebrew people go, we read, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. So as I wrote to you uh, earlier this week, if you get the weekly email, if not, let us know. We will make sure that you get uh, on that list. Uh, this is kind of like going from you know Washington, D.C. to New York via Charleston, South Carolina. It's a little out of the way. And he says that he doesn't want them to go that way because there's Philistines that way. The Hebrew people have no idea who the Philistines are. They've been enslaved in Egypt for more than four centuries. And God's leadership now must have made no sense to them at all. So I use the illustration in Sunday school with the high schoolers. It's like going from here to Atlantic City via the Outer Banks. You know, we would just go up sort of to Baltimore and over to New Jersey. And somebody said Baltimore is like the Philistines. That Steelers fans would agree with that. You probably could figure out who that person might be. So there's that. But they've got a quick way, a direct way, a common way. It's a highway, essentially, to Canaan. And God says, you don't get to go that way. We're going to go the long way. He didn't even say the scenic way because it's in the, through the wilderness. And it's not that scenic unless you're in love with the desert. And we're going to march straight for the Red Sea because right now there's like a land bridge we can walk across. But we're going to go this way where there's no land to cross. How could this possibly be the best way to the promised land? They need to go northeast and instead they head directly south. But God knew what they didn't know. And often I think if we knew what God knew, life would make a lot more sense. But God knew what they didn't. And that's that the Philistines are going to become their mortal enemies. And the Red Sea is soon going to be parted by his miraculous power. And he took them where they had no idea where they needed to go. And as C.S. Lewis, as I found out, quoting James Joyce in the book Ulysses, once observed that sometimes the longest way around is the shortest way home. The longest way around is the shortest way home. 
So when God takes you the long way around, what does he want you to learn? When you're up at night worrying about that decision or that fear or that problem, and you don't think God's answering it the way you want him to answer it, what does God want you to learn? Well, from Exodus 13, we can learn at least three things. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. And so the first thing God wants you to learn is his requirement of us. His requirement of us. Verses 3 through 10. That should be the first blank there. I put the blanks in, didn't I? Sometimes I forget. And before we get to that, I want to ask you a question. Sometimes you'll hear people say, or someone might say to you, uh, that theology doesn't matter. That's something for the professionals to talk about in the classroom. It just doesn't impact day-to-day life. Well, one of the things that's very clear in this passage and in this whole book is that theology does matter. God is stressing that all of life, our worship, our work, is to be ordered and informed by God's redeeming work. In other words, everything we know by God's revelation in his word in the Bible, everything we know about God's redemption is to inform all of our life. And the shorthand for that is theology. That's the first lesson of Exodus. To study Exodus is to learn the theology of salvation. The story of Israel's escape from Egypt demonstrates so many of the great doctrines of the Christian faith. Exodus teaches us about sin and judgment. When God sent plagues against the Egyptians, he's judging them for sin. Exodus teaches election. God rescues the Israelites because they were his people. Exodus teaches substitutionary atonement. God's people are saved by the blood of the lamb offered in their place. There's also a propitiation because the blood turns aside God's wrath. Exodus teaches us the communion of the saints, which Andy prayed about just a few minutes ago. The Israelites shared Passover, and as they did, they remembered the God of their salvation. Exodus teaches sanctification. We heard that from Dave a few weeks ago because God told him to sweep away the yeast that represented their old life of sin. Exodus gives Israel nearly a complete theological education. Hardly any major doctrine is left out. And in Exodus 13, there's now another pillar of theology uh, is introduced here in the doctrine of redemption. This chapter gives instructions for the redemption of sons. And like Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, this ritual is to remind the Israelites how God saved them from Egypt. Their rescue was a redemption. In other words, their release was bought by the payment of a price. So redemption helps complete our understanding of the Exodus. It also helps us appreciate and understand our own Uh, salvation, because this doctrine has so many connections to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Scripture says, Ephesians 1, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. In the parallel passage in Colossians 1, we read, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, 
the forgiveness of sins. So back to Exodus 13. I'm going to skip the first two verses, come back to them later on. So let's look at verses 3 through 10. Because this passage contains divine directives regarding the consecration of the firstborn and the feast of the unleavened bread. But all of that is directly related to the Exodus and to our remembrance of God's work in the Exodus. So here, the Exodus and uh, the unleavened bread and the consecration, it's all linked together. And it's all explained by what God has done in the Exodus. So look with me, turn to verse 3. It says, Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Today in the month of Aviv you are going out, and when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. And on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you. And no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. You shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year. So here God is calling us to remember his redemption through the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. And as we do, we realize that our worship itself is a remembering of redemption. Our worship, especially when we're worshiping through a sacrament like the Lord's Supper, is a remembering of redemption. Notice several things here in verse 3. It says, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. First of all, you have the command to remember. Remember is the first word of the fourth commandment, which is the Sabbath commandment. And here, just like there, remember, it means more than simply calling something to mind, something that happened in the past. He's saying this, the day of the Exodus is to have a controlling influence on the life of Israel. And so this command is given, remember this day when you came out of Egypt. Notice also this phrase, he says, remember this day in which you came out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The house of slavery is this graphic recollection of the practice of the Egyptians. They'd have a large house within this walled-in slave city where all the slaves would be kept. And it became a metaphor to the Israelites for the whole land of Egypt. It was their experience of oppression and bondage and slavery, and they're brought out of the house of slavery. Notice again how the power of God is emphasized here, how they came out of the land of Egypt by a strong hand, the Lord brought you out from this place. Some versions say a mighty hand or a powerful hand. And it's not only emphasized in verse 3, but it's repeated in verses 9, 14, and 16. And as you know, repetition is the Bible's way to emphasize something. 
So here God wants to be totally clear. It's not through great strategy. It's not through Moses' brilliance. It wasn't through Moses' courage. It wasn't through the people's faithfulness. It's through his strong hand that they came out of Egypt. And then it's emphasized over and over again that they were brought out of Egypt. They didn't escape on their own. They didn't wake up one day and say, we should just leave. They were brought out. Verses 3, 4, 8, 9, 14, 16, 17, 18. All those verses emphasize eight times that the children of Israel are brought out of Egypt. It's part of being set apart for the Lord as they're brought out of Egypt. And in remembrance of these things, no leaven is to be eaten, only unleavened bread for seven days. In other words, God is giving Israel this concrete way of remembering what he has done by depriving themselves of normal bread, normal leavened bread, bread with yeast, soft bread. Basically, you get these big hard crackers. And they're remembering the bread of haste, the bread they had to make in the wake of God's deliverance. The unleavened bread reminds them of the work of God and bringing them out of Egypt. Now look at verse 6. Verse 6 says, Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Emphasizing once more, it takes the power of God to bring this about. This feast is to be instituted for them. Once they're in the promised land. He doesn't say start the feast this week. He says once you get there. Now, we've had the ability to look ahead. We know they ain't getting there next week. They ain't getting there next month. They think they're getting there next month. It would take about a month to walk there if they took the short route. But they're not going to take the short route. They have no idea when they're going to get there. He says, once you get there, then you start this feast. What's the significance of that? God doesn't ask his people to respond to him in worship until he's fulfilled his promise of redemption. So he's saying, look, my word's good. You're going to be in the land that I promised you. And when you're there, then institute this feast in remembrance of what I've done for you. Worship is always a response to what God has done. Yes, it may look forward in faith uh, to the future of what he's going to do, but it's always a response to what he's already done. And so you get specific instructions there in verses 6 and 7 about this feast. And then you get the command in verse 8 to instruct your children in all the meaning of this. It says, you shall tell your son on that day, is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And there to understand that the reason this is being done is because of what the Lord did. But look again at that verse. Look at the specific language of verse 8. It says, tell your son it's because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. Now that language is not only to be the language of the first generation as they tell their sons, it's to be the language of the next generation and the next generation and the next generation so that 20 generations down the line 
when it's your great, 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 great grandfather whom the Lord brought out of Egypt, you're still telling your son, we're doing this because the Lord brought me out of Egypt. Because you wouldn't be here if the Lord hadn't fulfilled his promise. And my friends, it's the same. It's the same for believers today. We may be 50 generations removed from the cross. But what the Lord Jesus did, he did for me. Not simply for us, not simply for the people of his day, not simply for his disciples and their immediate uh, associates, but for me individually and specifically, even though I'm part of a multitude that no man can number, even though I'm connected with the saints who've gone before and those who come after, yet he has done it for me even as he has done it for you as you trust in his name. And so this command is given to instruct your children in the truth of why this rite, this feast, this sacrament is performed. <coughs> then in verse 9, we're told again, the Passover and the Feast of the Unleavened Bread are to serve as a reminder, as a sign of the Lord's redemptive work. The theology of redemption is to inform the theology of of worship, and that's to impact all of life. The remembrance of unleavened bread is to permeate the whole way you look at the world. When you look at the world, you're supposed to remember that you're a redeemed person. That's the whole point of the feast, or in our case, the Lord's Supper. We're reminded to remember what God has done, and we're reminded to remember it again and again and again. You can sort of quickly see how this applies uh, to this truth, to the Lord's Supper. In Luke 22, when Jesus is instituting the Lord's Supper, he takes the bread and he says to his disciples, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In remembrance of me. He's calling up all the richness of this passage to remember the redemptive work of the Lord in the Feast of the Unleavened Bread and in the Passover, and he's applying it to the Lord's Supper. It doesn't mean that the Lord's Supper is just a bare remembrance, but it does mean that at the heart of the Lord's Supper is the finished work of Jesus Christ. We're to remember what he's done and remember it and realize it and draw strength from it. So it's no surprise when the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, we read this every month. You've heard this. If you've been in the church, you should have heard this multiple times. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus Christ on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for many for the remission of sins. Drink it, all of you, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You're proclaiming the cross. You're proclaiming the finished work of Christ. You're proclaiming that he's the redeemer and you've been redeemed. 
when you walk down for the Lord's Supper and get the uh, bread and the cup, you are proclaiming that I have a Redeemer and I'm redeemed. It's a memorial of redemption. You're looking at the finished work of Jesus Christ. But the whole point of the remembrance is to impact your life so that when you leave and you walk back up the other aisle, you leave with a commitment to live as a redeemed person. You've literally been redeemed by the strong hand of the Lord, and it's supposed to impact your life. It's to impact your personal life, your work life, your family life, every area of your life. You're a bought person. God has paid for you. You belong to him. You are his. You start to see how the theology of redemption informs the theology of worship, which informs how you live your life. If you get anything out of Exodus, get that theology matters. When God takes you the long way around, what does he want you to learn? Well, the first thing he wants you to learn is there's a requirement to remember his redemption in your life. The second thing God wants you to learn is that because of his redemption in your life, you must know his claim upon us. His claim upon us. And now we go back to the beginning, verses 1 and 2, and then we'll jump to verses 11 through 16. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. And jumping to verse 11, When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and to your fathers, he, and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals are to be ma are, that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And when in time to come your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a mark on your hand and frontlets between your eyes, for by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. So the second part of this passage is a follow-up to this doctrine of redemption. You look back at verses 1 and 2, and then down verses 11 to 16, we sort of see another side to this truth. The first part spoke of remembering God's redemption. The second part speaks of acknowledging God's ownership. It speaks of the consecration of the firstborn and emphasizes that we belong to God and that God's ownership has to be believed and lived out in everyday life. Look at verse 1. It begins with the phrase, The Lord said to Moses, it's a phrase frequently used in the book of Exodus to indicate the Lord is speaking directly to Moses and that Moses is to pass on uh, what he's heard to the people. So what does he pass on? Look at verse 2. He calls for the consecration of firstborn males 
of both man and beast. You've got to notice a few things here. Consecrate is a word used for devotion, for dedication. It can mean to consider as belonging to God. And you can see that from the very last words of verse 2. What does it say? So whatever is the first to open the womb is mine. It belongs to God. Consecrate it to God. Give it to God. Acknowledge that it belongs to God. All the firstborn males of all the beasts, firstborn sons of the people, consider them as belonging to God. Why? What's the significance of this? Well, there's several things uh, that need to be said. First of all, remember that the Feast of Passover and the Feast of the Unleavened Bread coincide with the spring and the barley harvest. Well, I know that most of you grew up on farms, like maybe three of you. Maybe. So we don't have a real high uh, agricultural IQ uh, in Northern Virginia. But if you did, you would know that the spring is sort of the birthing season for animals. And so the emphasis here is associating God's gift of fruitfulness, not as the pagans did, not with some regular cycle of the seasons, not with the pantheistic worship of the earth, not with the gods of fertility, but with God's redemptive work of the exodus. That is, God's blessing of fruitfulness on man and beast is tied to his redemptive work. Second, ancient cultures considered that the firstborn son was intrinsically holy. Now, this here may well be a statement against all those false gods, all those pagan gods of all those other cultures, telling them that the one true God, uh, God alone, is the one that grants fruitfulness. We know that elsewhere Moses emphasizes that God can choose whether or not he'll use the firstborn. He chooses not to use Esau and instead uses Jacob. He chooses not to use Ishmael and instead uses uh, Isaac. So God will choose whom he will use. Third, this passage makes it clear, and this is really important. Children are not to be sacrificed. Though firstborn males are to be devoted and dedicated to the Lord, they must be redeemed. Now you can think, who in the world would think about sacrificing a child? The answer is a lot of people. More people then, but more and more people now. Particularly a lot of people in Canaan, where they were going, would have thought that. In fact, the Canaanites practiced Molech worship, where the firstborn male child was burned alive in a sacrifice to Molech in order to ensure further fruitfulness. And this practice of Molech worship was banned three times in the Old Testament. In Leviticus, in Chronicles, and in Jeremiah. It was considered an abomination to sacrifice a child. Now, one of my professors at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary was a, a man named Dr. Gary Pratico. And he was a great teacher, but he was a gifted biblical archaeologist. And I remember he would tell all these great stories about archaeology. And everybody would want to be an archaeologist. Um, they make no money. So um, we all quickly decided to be something else. But I remember him telling the story of being on an archaeological dig 
when they opened a tophet. Now, a tophet is an ancient burial site, and there they uncovered clay jars filled with the bones of infants and children, thousands of them. And he talked about sitting in the dirt on the edge of that dig, holding the four-inch leg bone of a child in his hand and just weeping and just seeing stretch out in front of him these clay jars just piled one on top of the other, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them, knowing that inside each clay jar was the remains of a child and just how overwhelmed he was. He says these people were not hideous, horrible people. These were people who took their religion very seriously. So seriously, they sacrificed their firstborn sons. And so here, God is making it absolutely clear that this is not to be done in Israel. The firstborn child must be redeemed by a lamb just like he was redeemed in Egypt. The male animals are singled out for sacrifice because, quite frankly, they're less valuable for breeding. The Lord was being gracious to this agricultural people. Don't sacrifice the firstborn female animals. You need them for breeding more animals, and you need animals to survive. Take one of the males. They're not as important. That's probably still true. And the firstborn sons and the sacrifice of the firstborn male animals are clearly related to the tenth plague. Has God spared the firstborn uh, male animals and the firstborn sons of Israel from the plague of death? So also the firstborn animals and sons are to be devoted to the Lord. And verse 11 makes this clear. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. And again, we see the link of this command for consecration of the firstborn to the Lord's fulfillment of his promise to bring people into the promised land. In verse 12, this verse specifies what was implied in verse 2. Every firstborn male, whether man or beast, belongs to God. In verse 13, we're told in addition to the clean animals, uh, that also a donkey, who's an unclean animal, but useful as a beast of burden, has to be redeemed or destroyed. And it's interesting, it said that if you don't redeem the donkey, you must break its neck. Now that sounds really strange. A couple things. First, you have to realize if a person refuses to devote this animal to the Lord, he loses the use of the animal. You refuse, you lose. That's probably still true when it comes to God. The Lord will have his redemption honored. Second, if you refuse to redeem uh, the animal, the animal can't be slain with a knife. That might look like you're sacrificing it. So the animal's neck is to be broken. It's an unclean animal. It's not to be used for a sacrifice, and so it's killed in a way that there's no mistaking it for a sacrifice. And then on the other hand, you go to verse 13. It says, every firstborn of man among your sons, you shall redeem. There's no option here. They must be redeemed. There's to be no child sacrifice. A lamb must be substituted for them, just like in the Exodus. 
And then we get to verse 14. We see the significance of all this is explained, especially to that firstborn son. And here we see we should never underestimate the power of a father telling the truth to his son. There's nothing that can replace it. There's nothing that can substitute for it. A father explaining the truth about God and his redemption to his son. And then in verse 15, you're given the explanation that the father is supplied to the father so he can tell his son. And here's what you say. Here's the rationale. The Lord killed Egypt's firstborn, both man and beast, and spared Israel's firstborn, both man and beast. How? By the blood of the Passover lamb. And therefore, by virtue of this blood, this redemption, the firstborn of Israel belongs to God. And they have to be devoted to him. They wouldn't be alive if not for the mercy of the Lord. And so you have this consecration of the firstborn, this dedication, this act of giving over the firstborn sons to serve as a sign of the Lord's mighty deliverance. And he says it's to be so tangible as if the words themselves were tied to your head and to your hands. I don't think this is a command for a literal uh, phylactery, which is those little cylinders which the ultra-Orthodox uh, Jews put uh, small parts of Scripture in and then tie them to their head and to their hands. I think this is more of a metaphorical usage, much like the Apostle Paul says in Romans 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. You're to realize in the very act of devotion that you yourself belong to God. You wouldn't be here if it were not for his redemption. And especially the firstborn sons of Israel would not be here if it weren't for the Passover lamb. So we have to see ourselves, our own lives, as a stewardship we owe to God. We often talk about stewardship just in terms of money or in terms of possessions. But this says we're to be stewards of ourselves, not just what we have. We give account of ourselves because that's what the Lord has done. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. We are not our own. We belong to the Lord. And therefore, we must render to him not only what he's given us, but our whole lives. We're to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Well, how does that apply to us today? Well, first of all, we have to realize we're God's firstborn via our union with Christ. We're a kingdom of priests. We've been bought by the blood of the Lamb. Jesus is the firstborn, the firstfruits, but because we've been redeemed and have been united to him, we now share in the benefits and blessings of the firstborn. That language is used repeatedly in the New Testament, that believers understand what it is to be the firstborn, to be kin to the firstborn Son of God. Second, we have to realize we belong to God. It's not just that the firstborn of ours belong to God, but all of us who trust in Christ belong to him because we've been bought with a price. We've been redeemed. We've been paid for. We belong to him. 
And now we have to demonstrate that in every area of life. So when God takes you the long way around, what does he want you to learn? Well, first, there's a requirement to remember his redemption. Second, God wants you to know that because of that redemption, you have to know his claim upon you, that you belong to him. And third, God wants you to learn his provision for us, his provision, verse 17 through 22. His provision for us. It says, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea, and the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they may travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. So beginning with verse 17, Moses comments on this divinely chosen route out of Egypt. And the first thing Moses tells us is after Pharaoh lets the people go is the way the Lord took Israel out of Egypt. He tells you this, he wants you to understand something about God. God knows his people and he rules very mindful of their needs, their weaknesses, their vulnerability, fears, circumstances, and desires. That's still true. God knows us better than we know ourselves. We don't know the exact route of the Exodus. There's lots of speculation. But we do know in general which way they went. And it wasn't the way of the sea, and it wasn't the way of the land of the Philistines. And the reason we know that was because Moses goes out of his way to tell us. Verse 17, God did not lead them by way of the Philistines, although that was near. Notice the stress here on God leading his people. This doesn't deny that God used Moses or God used lots of other people to help Israel uh, out of Egypt. But it shows that God takes direct leadership in bringing his people out of Egypt. In the second half of verse 17, you find out why. He said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. That way is just a few hundred miles to go by the way of the Philistines, by the way of the sea. But there's Philistines. They run into these other people who warred against them and sucked Israel into conflict. And Exodus tells us they're equipped for battle, they're armed for battle. But they haven't been trained for battle, they've been slaves for 400 years. They can build stuff, but they don't know how to fight. And so God is merciful in that he takes into account our weaknesses as he plans the ways that we should go. In the light of their concern about uh, their unreadiness for battle, God deliberately leads his people by way of the wilderness. Now we know many years later, another Pharaoh's army was able to go from Egypt into Canaan uh, by the quick route in about 10 days. It's less than 200 miles. 
Now, assuming the addition of women and children and a very slow-moving crowd of a couple million people, we can assume Israel probably would have taken them about a month going that way. But God takes them a different way. And he does so because he knows the weakness of his people. That's a really important point for us to consider. God is showing his knowledge of us and his care for us, his providence over us, his provision for us in planning the route that we should go and for the Israelites, his people, in planning the route of the Exodus. He doesn't send them the shortest way. Now Israel's going to get in the wilderness and you know what's going to happen. It's not going to be comfortable. It's not going to be nice. There's no Holiday Inn Express. There's nothing. And we say desert, we're not talking about big sand dunes. We're talking about rock. Lots of rock. As far as the eye can see, rock. That's all you get. Lots of rock. It's real comfortable. And they're going to start complaining. Lord, you've led us out into the wilderness to die. And in light of that reaction, I think it's even more amazing knowing that the reason God took them out that way, the way that they considered to be way too hard, was actually to make it easier on them. And I think we should think about that. We sing beautiful hymns. We sang one today. By the way, that hymn uh, that we sang today uh, started however many hours ago and is being sung like across the time zones all the way around the world today. That's the point. They actually have a website and you can go look at all the churches that sang that hymn today. We sing hymns. One of the hymns we sing is How Firm a Foundation. It's one of my favorite hymns. It talks about God helping us in times of trial and God leading us even though we don't understand and we don't get it. And we think there's a shorter way, a better way. But do we ever stop to think however hard it is right now that God in his wonderful providence has ordained to not put us through another trial that would be even more unbearable for us. But this trial, the one we're in right now that seems so unbearable, so much so that we're tempted, like the Israelites in the desert, to question God's wisdom and to question God's kindness and to question God's goodness. Did it ever occur to us that he sends us uh, on the easy way because he sent his son on the hard way? And the way we're on is far easier than the way he sent his son. And if God is sending us the long way around, we see that he provides for us on the way. He provides food, yes, but more so than that, God provides himself. Moses shows us the presence of God. It's a description, an extraordinary way in which the Lord showed himself to the Israelites. We learn that God is near his people in the wilderness. In verse 20, they're standing on the very boundaries of the wilderness. This is mentioned some cities. They go by, and they get by the cities, and then it's wilderness. It's desert. It's rock. Ahead lies the unknown. In such circumstance, what does Israel have going for her? Well, she has this vivid memory of what God has just done in Egypt. She's seen God's power displayed in the plagues and the defeat of Pharaoh, they're going to see it ways in the days ahead that's going to boggle their minds. 
So they have this vivid, immediate memory of what God has done for them. What else do they have going for them? Well, they have the bones of Joseph. Well, isn't that wonderful? We're carrying a coffin with us. But they are. Because the bones of Joseph are a reminder of God's promises and God's faithfulness to his promises. There they are. They're looking up at Joseph in his coffin and they're remembering promises made hundreds of years ago to their ancestors, even before Joseph. Remembering that God has amazingly fulfilled all those promises. And so after 430 years, surely there are some people among them who are doubting whether God is going to fulfill his promises. And just in case any doubter can say, hey, look at the box. Joseph's in that box just like he said he would be, just like he said God would do. God's taking us out of Egypt. You have questions, you have doubts, look at the box. God has given them something even more amazing. This twin manifestation and these twin pillars of cloud and pillar of fire. His powerful presence is made known to them day or night. The picture you have uh, before the songs of the pillar of cloud was taken by a good friend of mine who's not a believer. And uh, he took that picture and posted it. It actually was taken uh, just uh, last week in Colorado. And so I wrote him, he says, that's your picture? Can I use that? He was like, sure. And I explained that I'm preaching through Exodus. He got to the point of a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. And I went to use that picture. And he wrote back and said, I'd be honored. And he doesn't believe. But I think he's looking up Exodus and what's a pillar of cloud and why does he want to use that picture? The pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire show the powerful presence of God both night and day. Verse 22 indicates that that's continuous nature of his presence. It's a manifestation of God's nearness to us. And we don't have time to do justice to it, but throughout the New Testament, this shows up again and again. Jesus makes clear in the Gospel of John. Paul makes clear, Corinthians and Ephesians, God's near, nearness to us is not less than that time, but greater than that time. Because Jesus says he had sent the Holy Spirit to be our comforter, our advocate, in order that we can enjoy the continual comfort and presence of God. In Acts and Corinthians, it's made clear that the Shekinah glory of God, manifested as a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire, now takes residence in your heart through the Holy Spirit by faith. That's how near God is to you. It's not just the incarnation of his son, but it's the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in which God is present within you, comforting you, strengthening you, guiding you, stabilizing you, giving you peace when there's no reason for peace. What do you need when you're getting ready to go into the wilderness? When God's taking you the long way around? You need to know that God's redeeming his people. You need to know that because of his redemption in your life that you belong to him. And you need to know that because you belong to him, he is always near you, always with you, and always in you, this day and all days. Think about that. You should thank God for that. Do that now, and then I'll close.
Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us once again by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and see our Savior, and teach us the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. Lord, we acknowledge that through the finished work of Christ on the cross, we belong to you. We belong to you as your creation. You made us. In you we live and move and have our being. But now, because we've been redeemed by Jesus, we belong to you again. Grant that we may live like it. In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.